With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest in, how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 141. It's titled, The Universal Law You Need to Grasp in order to thrive. Recording today's episode in Mexico. We've been here about a week. Hopefully, we'll continue to be here for the ongoing weeks, but recording this outside, so you're probably going to hear maybe a little bit of bird noise, hopefully not too much of a distraction. But earlier this week, I found Maria sitting on the outside step of a small convenience store on the busiest street in Valladolid. This is a town of about 50,000 people, on the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, she wore the traditional appeal dress of the Yucatecan Maya, a white tunic embroidered with flowers. Her hand was outstretched to anyone that passed, and she softly repeated the words caridad, which is Spanish for charity. I sat down next to her as I fumbled with the money that I had and I was going to give her, and we began a conversation. She told me her name and that she was 78, and she'd been a widow for over 20 years. Her children live far away. And I asked her, well, how do you, how do you get to and from by the lead? And she said she takes one of the community taxis. And these, these taxis are often pickup trucks with wood benches sitting in the back of the bed for the passengers to sit on. I asked her where she was from, which village. And she said, Chimaya, or Chimaya is what I thought she said, which is about a town of 100 residents but it's 40 miles from by the lead. So after researching kind of where the town was, it just seemed too far to come. But there are dozens of villages in the countryside around by the lead. Maria spoke Mayan, so maybe I just kind of misunderstood where she was from. But many of those villages have Catholic churches that have stood for 400 years, evidence of the Spanish conquest of the peninsula. I have visited Valladolid seven or eight times since I lived there for a few months about 30 years ago. I like to go back and see because I want to see what has changed and what hasn't changed. And it's surprising how little has changed in 30 years. The same hotels and restaurants overlook the central plaza with its fountain, its S-shaped chairs, and metal benches. The taxis are the same kind of ugly shade of brown that they have been for the past 30 years, although some of the cars are updated. There's still a vendor that sells coconut ice cream at the corner of the park. And there are always gray-haired women like Maria dressed in Mayan apiles with their hands outstretched asking for charity. In 1928, the British archaeologist Sir J. Eric Thompson stayed in Valladolid on his way to the Mayan ruins of Coba. His description of the city would be just as accurate today. He wrote, A great rugged church built to serve also as a place of refuge for the early Spanish colonists in the event of a Mayan rising dominates the low municipal buildings and shops on the other three sides of the plaza. 
The center of the plaza laid out in typical Latin American fashion as a small park was adorned with monstrous cement fountains in the forms of realistic frogs and pairs of seats of the same material in the shape of an S so that a person seated in one loop of the S faced his companion in the other. There's a high probability in another 90 years the center of Valladolid will look a lot like it did in 1928 and as it does today. You should still be able to get a traditional meal of pokchuk, which is this thinly sliced pork marinated in oranges and accompanied with, with refried beans, kind of a tomato sauce, and eat it with handmade tortillas. You can get that at one of the restaurants on the, overlooking the park. I suspect 90 years, you'll still be able to do that, just as you could eat this traditional Yucatecan meal in 1928. But then again, maybe not. In 1545, the Maya probably thought their ancient center of Saki would stand for hundreds of more years. But then the Spanish came and founded Valladolid on that very site, dismantling many of Saki's structures to use the stone to build the colonial-style buildings and cathedral that surrounds the main plaza. The Maya rebelled in 1546 against the destruction of their city and way of life, sacrificing 16 captured Spaniards as an offering to the Mayan gods. And for almost 400 years, the Maya continued to periodically rebel against the Spanish in revolts, wars, and insurrections well into the early 20th century. We like to think the orderly state of things that has endured for decades like an attractive central plaza A constitutional democracy or our good health will continue to endure. But an orderly state is the exception. Disorder and chaos are more common. Steven Pinker wrote a fascinating essay that forms the basis for this episode. It it appeared in Edge, its online magazine, and it was on the underappreciated second law of thermodynamics. He writes... That order can be characterized in terms of the set of all microscopically distinct states of a system. Of all these states, the ones that we find useful make up a tiny sliver of the possibilities, while the disorderly or useless states make up the vast majority. It follows that any perturbation of the system, whether it is a random jiggling of its parts or a whack from the outside, will, by the laws of probability, nudge the system toward disorder or uselessness. If you walk away from a sandcastle, it won't be there tomorrow because as the wind, waves, seagulls, and small children push the grains of sand around, they're more likely to arrange themselves into one of the vast number of configurations that don't look like a castle than into the tiny few that do. Maintaining order requires effort. It takes responsibility. The Eiffel Tower in Paris, a steel structure that was supposed to be temporary when it was built in 1889 for the Universal Exhibition, cost over $14 million annually to maintain, including painting it every seven years, a process that takes 20 months to complete. Here, the the Mayan ruins, with left unattended, become overcome with, with brush that you can't you can't imagine how thick the jungle is around it and and they become lost for centuries. Sometimes things actually go extinct. 
There was a fascinating essay by John Mualem in the New York Times Magazine. It was on the Neanderthal. And I recently sent out a DNA sample to Ancestry to get a basically an idea of where my forefathers came. They do DNA analysis, but generally they come back, these analysis, with about 2% Neanderthal DNA. And this this article talks about certainly the Neanderthal, but just sort of the really negative view that we've had toward Neanderthal. And, and the article's titled, Neanderthals are people too. But there was a particular section on his extinction that I thought was pretty fascinating. He writes, some paleoanthropologists are starting to reimagine the extinction of Neanderthals as equally prosaic, not the culmination of some epic clash of civilizations, but an aggregate result of a long ecological muddle. Strictly speaking, extinction is what happens after a species fails to maintain a higher proportion of births to death. It's a numbers game. And so the real competition between Neanderthals and early modern humans wasn't localized quarrels for food or territory, but a quiet, millennium-long demographic marathon, each species repopulating itself until one fell so far behind that it vanished. It was was a gradual event. For things to to remain, that takes effort to keep them up and to find the right balance. You have the birth-death ratio, but even in finance, if you're retired, your spending needs to be less over time than what you earn investing. Otherwise, your principal starts to be drawn down. Retirement ruin is where suddenly there is no assets assets left to live on. Wallam goes on to say, for millennium, some scientists believe before modern humans poured in from Africa, the climate in Europe was exceptionally unstable. The landscape kept flipping between temperate forest and cold treeless steppe. The fauna that the Neanderthals subsisted on kept migrating away faster than they could. Though Neanderthals survived this turbulence, they were never able to build up their numbers. Across all Eurasia, at any point in history, says John Hawks, an anthropologist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, there probably weren't enough of them to fill an NFL stadium. With the demographics so skewed, Stringer went on, even the slightest modern human advantage would be amplified tremendously. A single innovation, sometime, something like sewing needles, might protect just enough babies from the elements to lower the infant mortality rate and allow modern humans to conclusively overtake the Neanderthals. Now, in Pinker's essay, he goes on and writes, Poverty, too, needs no explanation. In a world governed by entropy and evolution, it is the default state of mankind. Matter does not just arrange itself into shelter or clothing, and living things do everything they can not to become our food. What needs to be explained is wealth, yet most discussions of poverty consist of arguments about who to blame. This past week, Oxfam reported the top eight billionaires in the world have more wealth than half the globe's population. Now, that's an astounding figure. But Pinker argues that poverty, that's really the default state, the state of disorder. And it's the gathering of wealth, the accumulation of wealth, that is really what needs to be explained. 
when I come to the Yucatan, I, first time I went in the 80s, very, very poor. And it's still poor, but it's improving. And one thing the Mexican government has done is one, it measures poverty. You can't improve something unless you measure it. And they have multiple programs, et cetera, to help the people improve as the economy is, has expanded. They estimate in the Yucatan the about 43, 46% of the Yucatecan population is poor. So they're lacking in some area access to education or a basic home, food, etc. They've estimated about 34% is vulnerable, so potentially could fall into poverty, and 20% is not poor or vulnerable at all. So that, those are pretty dire statistics, which Pink would say is kind of the default state. But when you look at how things have improved in even the last 15 years, about 12% of the population here was illiterate in the year 2000. Now it's only around 7.4%. About 6% of the homes had just a dirt floor. And I remember being in a lot of dirt floor homes back in the 80s. Now it's only about 2% have dirt floors. And in terms of the percent of the population 15 years and older that have completed just their basic education, only 58 or 58% hadn't done so in the year 2000. Now it's only around 38%. Here was something else I thought interesting. Certainly back in the 80s, a big push was to bring out electricity to all the homes. In the year 2000, about only about 5% didn't have electricity. Now it's, it's around 1%. 48% of the population didn't have a washing machine in the year 2000. Now it's 28%. 42% didn't have a refrigerator. Now it's 18%. Now, how does that compare to the U.S.? The U.S. does a similar measure. It measures you know, which percent of the population in the U.S. is not able to meet its basic needs. And they define that as fewer than two difficulties meeting basic needs. So if you have more than three things that you're, you're lacking in in terms of just meeting basic food needs, 88% of the U.S. population can meet its basic needs. Now, that, that's a big difference where in the, the Mexico, it's anywhere from 60% to 50% can't meet their basic needs. And then when it comes to appliances – they measure sort of who's got the full suite of appliances in the U.S. And by full suite, you have these six. You have a clothes washer, a clothes dryer, a refrigerator, a stove, a dishwasher, and a landline or cellu cellular phone. So in Mexico, or in the, at least in the Yucatan, 28% don't have a, a washer. And the, I would say the vast majority – don't have a dryer or a dishwasher for that matter. In fact, when you look at in the U.S., 64% of the population doesn't have the, that full set of appliances, but I would be included. When we remodeled our kitchen, we didn't have a – we don't have a dishwasher. Now, before I describe how the second law of thermodynamics applies to investing, let me share some words from our sponsors – when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical 
to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. So what does the second law of thermodynamics have to do with investing? Remember reading an essay by Kevin Kelly. It might have been one of his books. I could not find the reference, but he was talking about the idea that nothing in the economy really ever goes completely extinct. Neanderthals, yes, but things in the economy, and they would try to find something like a buggy whip and then go find some evidence that buggy whips continued. Saw this in, in the Yucatan. When I lived here in the 80s, there was something called Hennigan, and this was a, a sisal plant that would make rope at it. And most of the campesinos in Yucatan in the 80s, that's what they did. They grew corn and they worked the Hennigan fields. And then the, this, these the fibers from the hennequin is processed and turned into rope. But it got decimated by nylon rope. And you can drive through Yucatan and you see fields of hennequin that have been overtaken by, by the bush, by the monte. And you would think it would be completely gone, but it's not. We stopped by the ruins of Ake, which is a, is a Mayan ruin. And right next to it, there's a factory. It's an Hennequin factory. And we met a gentleman by the name of Jose Martinez, gave us a tour. He showed us how the machinery worked. It was amazing. No OSHA, no hard hats were walking around the machinery as they process this Hennequin. There used to be 90 processing plants around Yucatan for Hennequin, turning this, this these fibers into rope. Now there are only four there are 22 workers in Ake that work at this plant. But what's interesting when it comes to the economy is nothing ever really goes extinct, but the weights change. Their prominence. Nylon rope became more prominent than natural fiber rope. But now with, with climate change, business could potentially pick up there. That's why I like to invest in index funds 
or ETS, because they're a vehicle that seeks to replicate the entire market. You can replicate the entire stock market globally or a segment of it. But what it does is by doing that, you're not trying to predict which aspect of the economy or which companies will take the largest market share, which will become more prominent. All you're doing is you're wagering that economic growth and capitalism will continue. And so it's it's really taking advantage of you have this second law of thermodynamics where disorder and chaos rule the day. Businesses taking energy, taking knowledge to 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 essentially build out their business and some will prosper and some will may not go extinct, but not prosper as well. Indexing lets you capture all that. So that's why you know, that's the in, indexing aspect of the second law of thermodynamics. Steven Pinker also wrote, more generally, an underappreciation of the second law lures people into seeing every unsolved problem as a sign that their country is being driven off a cliff. And, and certainly there are some with inauguration this week have that fear. He goes on, it is the very nature of the universe that life has problems, but it's better to figure out how to solve them, to apply information and energy to expand our refuge of beneficial order than to start a conflagration and hope for the best. I like this idea. We're trying to carve out a refuge of beneficial order by using information and energy. I saw another Mayan woman. Maria was out there begging with her hands. Somebody else, another Mayan woman, came to, to us at, outside a restaurant. She was selling embroidered handkerchiefs with recuerdos of Valladolid. We bought one because there she's she's taking some energy, some information. Instead of just asking for a handout, she's building something, making something that she she can sell. We can take action to fight against disorder to to fight against the second law of thermodynamics. Christopher Day in his book, Spirit in Place, wrote, we can consciously direct our action. This is our route to ecological harmony, to make the world better, society fairer, places beautiful. Striving to make things beautiful is primarily about values and commitment, only secondarily about skill, talent, understanding, and experience. Ugliness and beauty have, at their underlying heart, absolute spiritual values, even though their manifestation, achievement, and recognition depend on our abilities, focus, and personal preferences. Design or any other aspect of life, from washing dishes to tidying the tool shed that aspires to do things beautifully, is, in one sense, reverent. That which knowingly sidelines this aspiration is sacrilege. We have the opportunity to decide in the midst of the disorder and chaos with everything falling apart, what actions are we going to take? What actions are we going to take to help others? What actions are we going to take to make things, to be creative, to find beauty in this world? Dave goes on to say, beauty and utility used to be inseparable from butter churns to Rick Thatch. I don't know what Rick Thatch is. Water mills to fortifications. There was no exception. In our time, they're normally disassociated. Both are impoverished thereby. The utilitarian services 
the utilit- utilitarian serves only material ends, starving the soul. It must find satisfaction elsewhere. Without underlying practical reason to give it integrity, the beautiful is ungrounded. Separating beauty from practicality means architects can design beautiful but unbuildable buildings. This disconnection severs what we feel from what we do, leaving the beautiful frivolous, contrived, and useless, and useful so dull we resent it. If everything useful is beautiful and everything beautiful is useful, neither tyrannizes the other nor has to justify itself. One of the comments I got last week on last week's episode on global warming was from Warren, and he studied global warming or climate change back in the 90s in graduate school. And he made the point, you know, at his simplest, reducing carbon footprint means spending less. As as we spend more money to create things, it creates more of a carbon footprint that can contribute to climate change. One one way to spend less is to buy things that that are beautiful and utilitarian because then we'll be more satisfied and we won't want to buy another. If you buy a coat, a coat that I love. And I'll keep it for years because I and I have because I like it. It's both utilitarian and beautiful. One of the things I see on YouTube a lot are the, these. I don't watch them, but they're in the trending videos where somebody goes out and they have a haul. H a u l. They they go find a clothing haul. They go find a makeup haul. They go to fast fashion. They find a store and then then they come and they show the haul they got. How much stuff they got for how cheap it was. That's not combining the beautiful and the utilitarian. That's just buying stuff, and we don't want to do that. There's one other quote that I was fascinated by Christopher Day, and he talked about you know, the things that survive that come down through the generations. He wrote that the past wasn't perfect, that it was intolerant, iniquitous, poverty-blighted, and often brutal. Ancient thinking interwove ignorance, superstition, and acceptance of authority with experience-based wisdom. If we but knew how to disentangle the threads of gold from the sewage, but whatever they did had to to survive an unforgiving world, as badly built buildings didn't last. The heritage we now enjoy has been rigorously edited. He says, and he does this in his architecture, he interprets the past. He takes the wisdom and then applies it to to today as he takes action to build buildings that will last in today's environment. We need to do the same thing with our life. Take the wisdom from the past, take the nuggets of wisdom, figure out what has survived, what has been rigorously edited that we can apply today, and then take action to combine beauty and utility in terms of combating, taking energy and information to combat how things fall apart as as part of the second law of thermodynamics. Carve out a refuge. That's the key. Carve out a refuge. That's episode 141. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. If you go there to that site, go ahead and sign up for my insider's guide. It's a free email. I'll send you weekly with links to the, the different articles that I reference, as well as a summary article of that week's episode. Sometimes I put other valuable content. That's at moneyfortherestofus.net. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, you can text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. 
Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. Simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.